Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the eight. Here, before we jump any further, before I say any more of the introduction, something you and I do when things are not going our way, our natural reflex, our instinct is to figure out who we can point to, who we can blame. When things are not going our way, one thing you and I have in common, hopefully we have more than just one thing in common, one thing we for sure have in common, our reflex is to point and blame people. It's his fault. It's my parents' fault of how they brought me up. It's the, it's the, you know, it's the politician's fault. It's someone else's fault for everything. Our natural reflex is to move in that direction. When there is a conflict in a relationship, when there's an issue with myself, when, whatever the case might be, I want to naturally point, right? We see this, we see this very prevalent in kids, right? What's his fault? He did it. She did it. We're not that much different. Now as adults, we just find a clever way to blame someone else. It's the government's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's because my mom did this to me when I was a kid, so forth and so on. Maybe a lot of it is understandable and a lot of it is true, but our natural reflex is to put an, a tremendous amount of weight on blaming someone or something else. When managing a conflict, when managing a relationship, something we've been talking about the past couple weeks here in this series, how season's greetings, we're not good at fixing relationships. We're not good at fixing relationships. We can start a relationship, we can probably maintain a relationship, but when things go south, we do not know how to fix it. So sometimes what we do to try to fix a relationship, we end up trying to convince someone else of what we view as being true or right. Like for example, things are not going well in my marriage. I want Sarah to understand my perspective is right and she needs to get on my page. That's my natural instinct is to move in that direction. I might try to convince someone or I might try to control someone. These are our, like, our go-to things when we're trying to manage or fix a relationship. I'll try to convince them of what's right. I don't care what they say. I don't care where they're coming from. I want to convince them of what's right or I want to try to control the narrative. So on that note, we are in part three of our series titled Seasons Greetings. And the subtitle of our series has been Relationship Management 101. We talked about last week was this decision. When, we're, when there's a conflict, we need to make a decision for us to focus on the who, not the thing. When a, when a bitterness or a grudge is being built up, when there's a wedge between us and someone else, we focus on the thing. What's causing the issue in the first place? It's because he did this, it's because she said that, so forth and so on. We focus on the thing that's causing the wedge as opposed to the who. We focus on the subject, the matter, the, the topic, as opposed to focusing on reconciling with the person. The best way to get back to someone, as opposed to getting back at someone, is to take the blame. And I know for a lot of us, including myself, this is not an attractive topic for us to talk about today. But for us to take the blame. We attempt to manage relationships, but we actually sometimes cause more pain. We try to manage and try to heal a relationship, but sometimes we actually cause more pain. And I want to share something you and I can all relate to. How we check out in relationships. When there's something we cannot do to fix this relationship or fix this issue, and you know, I, I don't want to see this person at the next family gathering. I want to be on the other side of the room when that person is, is in that same place with me, whatever the case might be. You know what you and I do when we try to check out from a conflict or a relationship that has gone sour? The first thing you and I say is, no, nah, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care anymore. Do you know why we say that? I don't care. 
We say this when we have no more power. Like when we're powerless in the situation, this is our go-to thing. We put our, put our hands like, I don't care anymore. I don't care. He can do whatever he wants. She can do whatever he wants. That means you're powerless. That means there's some things that are out of your control. So what do you do to try to cope with it, to check out? You say, I don't care. To be honest, when we say, man, I don't care, it shows that you actually care a lot. <laughs> the opposite is actually very true. Is that we care deeply about the subject or the person. But what do we say to try to cope with it? Man, I don't care about him. I don't care about her. She can do whatever she wants. The reality is you care deeply, but you're just powerless. Something else you and I say when we're done, when we're exhausted of trying to heal or reconcile or greet someone, we say this. I've already tried. I've tried. I've done everything I, I possibly can. As we've been talking the past couple weeks. The goal is nice to reconcile with that person. That's, it's a nice goal to reconcile with that person. But that should not be our ultimate goal. You know why? Because you do not have control over the other person. You do not have control over the other person. Yes, ideally, you, we want to reconcile, reconnect every broken relationship. I'm with you. An ideal world, that's what we want. But from what's, what's in our control, what's a constant we're able to control from our perspective is to heal it for, from our side of view. How can we maintain a bridge? How can we make sure that there is a road of communication between me and this person? So I need to do my part. Yes, I'm, I, of course, the, I, the goal is to, is to try to heal and, and bring full reconciliation. But I can't control, I can't put an agenda to someone else. You and I do not like it when someone else controls us. So we cannot control someone else. But what we can control is what is in my capacity that I have control over to maintain a bridge, to maintain a, a, a path of communication with me and this person. But sometimes we cross our arms and we say, man, I don't care. Or we say, man, I've already tried. I've done everything I possibly can. It's on the other person. Something else we say. It wasn't my fault. This is the internal narrative that you and I come to conclusions. Instead of being some piece about this wedge or this broken relationship, we say, it wasn't my fault in the first place. If he didn't do this, then we wouldn't be in this situation. If she, would, she didn't do that, we wouldn't be in this situation. We begin to convince ourselves that it's all, the 100% blame is on that other person, and we begin to convince ourselves it wasn't my fault in any shape or form. Let's be real. And reconciling a relationship, something I know, that person, that group of people in which every time you see them on the news or you're around that person at this gathering, at work, at church maybe, at school, whatever the case might be, every time you see this person, you convince yourself that you are the most mature person. You convince yourself that you are the healthiest person compared to that other person. That other person is sick, has problems, but you're the one that's more mature. Okay, let's go along with that assumption. If you are the more mature person, in your marriage, in your family, in whatever, you're the most mature person, then the most mature person is going to do the next step to try to reconnect with that person. If you are the most mature person, then it is, in your, it is your responsibility to initiate healing the relationship. If you are the most mature person, then it is your responsibility to try to heal the relationship. Why? Why should it be your responsibility if you are the most mature person? This is true for all of humanity. But especially if you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, this is integral for us to initiate, to heal a relationship. Why? Because your heavenly father made the first move to heal and to reconnect with humanity. If God made the first move through Jesus to heal the brokenness and to restore humanity, then this should be our model to follow as well. As if we're going to be a follower of him, if we're going to be an icon of him, 
then it requires us to make the best move. Not, I'm just going to give the silent treatment, if you apply this to marriage. I'm going to sleep on the other side of the bed. It's on him. It's on her to make the next move. If your heavenly father made the first move to initiate and to restore you, then it should be our mission as well to make the first move to restore and heal broken relationships. And I want to share with you now two questions. Two questions that the God-man, God in flesh, Jesus, asked some people who were intrigued by him. Question number one. Jesus asked them this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Many of you may, maybe have heard this or put it in somebody, it's a common saying. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Do you know what's our response to this? Jesus, it's not a speck of sawdust in that person's eye. That's a huge plank. Do you see what he did? you see what she did? That's not just a puny little thing wrong with that person. That person has a serious issue. That person's sick. That person's messed up. And we begin to blame. We, we say, no, that, that person doesn't have a sawdust. You have it wrong, Jesus. That person has a massive plank in his eye. I'm not the one with the issue. He's the one with the issue. She's the one with the issue. That, that group of people, they're the ones that have the issue, not me. I'm not the one with the issue. So our natural response to this question that Jesus is throwing out is saying, no, no, no. Jesus, that's, that, that's nice. It's cute. But you have it wrong. They're the ones with the plank. Okay, so you have it wrong. I'm, I'm not the one that have a speck of sawdust. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? That's not a, that's not, that's not a speck, Jesus. That is a massive issue. That problem, that person is sick, and I can't stand to be around that person. That person, I, I can't, like my blood boils every time I'm around that person. So no, Jesus, your question is wrong. They have more than just a speck of sawdust. Maybe that's our response. Maybe our response to this question is, I got no plank in my eye. I got nothing wrong with me. Like, you, you don't understand me. You don't know where I'm coming from. They're the one with the issue. She's the one with the issue. It's not me. So they're the one that has a plank in their eye, not necessarily me. This is our response to question number one. Question number two. Jesus continues. This is all in one breath. Jesus is asking these series of questions to his followers. And he's asking us these same questions 2,000 years later. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? When all the time there is a plank in your own eye. What is Jesus saying? Why do you want to correct every single person on social media? Why do you always want to tell them what they're doing wrong when, 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 when all the time you have an issue on your own side, when you have a plank in your own eye? Why are you so focused on correcting them all the time when you don't even take a second to look within yourself of what needs to be fixed within you? Jesus asked the question again. He's asking a second question related to this. Why do you are so focused on correcting them or telling them everything they're doing wrong when you don't even bother to look within yourself to see what you might be doing wrong? You know what? You know, Jesus continues. He says this. You hypocrite. You, you know what the word hypocrite? Like if you take the Greek word. The word, Greek word for hypocrite is you act. You act as if you have everything going, like you have everything under control. There ain't nothing wrong with you. That you're an actor. You're putting on a mask. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like, I love just Jesus as a communicator, regardless if he is your savior. If you just take him as a communicator, he's asking these series of questions to open up the topic. 
And then we become defensive. No, I'm not the one with the issue. And, and, and then Jesus hits them, saying, no, you're an actor, actually. He says, first take a look at the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You and I read this, and we think, okay, so does that mean I should, like, I should only mind my own business and I shouldn't correct someone else? No. Like, in, in society, right now, in American society, we go to the extreme of, you do you, I do me, I don't need to, like, correct you, I don't need to, you don't need to correct me. Everyone, like, there's no right or wrong, right? What's right to you is right to you, what's right to me is right to me, and you have no business to tell me what is the ethic of right or, uh, right or wrong or left or right, that's not your position, because everything is relative. This is where we are in American culture. But Jesus is saying, no, first focus on yourself, be introspective of your own weakness, and then you're able to have a healthy conversation to maybe to shed light to someone else. But you want to be strategic. You want to be pastoral. You want to be loving and caring of how you might correct someone. But don't make this your mission. First, focus inwardly. And then you'll be able to approach someone else of their issue. This is why a common language of the disciples, and especially St. Paul, an apostle, he would always say, before correcting someone else, or kind of before he writes something to the city of Rome, before he writes something to the city of Corinth, before he would write something to the city of Philippi, he would begin to say, I I'm chief of issues. Like, you, you, you have no idea my own struggles. I used to be a terrorist, now I'm all into Jesus, but I guess still got struggles. He would be the first one to admit his own weakness and be vulnerable in the letter that he probably doesn't know that it, that it was going to go not just beyond the Mediterranean Rim. But he's being so open and honest of saying, I'm the one of the issues, but out of my love for you, I'm wanting to share with you. He would be so blunt and so vulnerable to the say, the things that I struggle with, I hate. I hate the things that I struggle with, but I'm, I'm trying to push myself to do what is right. And him being so open and vulnerable, but he began with himself before bringing any word of encouragement or correction to those around him. Personally for me, like I always like to ask myself, like, I, and, and I'll be honest. Even in the, like, I, I, out of all the sacraments that the church gives us, I love the most the sacrament of confession. Like me participating as a, well, like, I, I like, I, I like going myself and when I'm able to listen to someone else's confession. Because it helps me grow. Because when I hear someone else's struggle, I'm like, yeah, you know what, I think I might be struggling that myself. Or I better be careful, I'm, that might be creeping up in my heart as well. So it brings light to myself. When, when, I, when I hear of other people's struggles, it brings it helps me grow. It helps me keep my, 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 my heart in line with God to avoid me drifting away from Him. Self-righteousness, I feel like I got everything under control. I know what I'm right. It blinds me. I'm right. She's the one that's wrong. That group, they're the ones that's wrong. Self-righteousness, that's blind. That blinds me. But self-awareness, that's what gives me clarity. Self-awareness, introspective. Or another term, a repentant heart. I love it. No, I don't love it. But it's, oh, I can almost put money on it. There's a couple, any, when I sit with any, any couple, and I always ask this question, what is one thing you feel like you can do better on yourself? What is one thing you, you wish the other person, what do you feel like you can do better in the relationship? I don't know, but she needs to do this and he needs to do, okay, we'll get there. What do you feel is one thing you need to do better yourself personally in the relationship? I don't know, but only if he stopped doing this, I wouldn't be in this situation. Okay, what is one thing you need to do better on? But we, we're so blinded by that question. We hate looking within ourselves to answer that question. 
The beauty of our 2,000-year-old church that has such a strong continuity and richness and beauty to this expression really makes it a big deal in our ancient prayers for us to look inward, for us to acknowledge our struggles. A trivia question for you. What is the very first words that are said in any liturgical communal service in the Orthodox Church? What are the very first words that are said? And, and maybe rightfully so, you'd be like, I don't know, they really come from the beginning, so I don't know the answer to that. But what, what's your answer? Like, what do you, anybody know or want to take a guess? Yeah, have mercy. The, first, the very first words that we pray liturgically in corporate worship in this rich expression of, of prayer for, for 2,000 years, from the early decades, the first words that were said is, have mercy on us, O God the Father. Have mercy on the very first words. These words, have mercy. God only knows how many times we say, Lord, have mercy in our prayers. Why? The church is wanting to break the, the hardness of our heart, to break through those barriers. Not for us to come and pray like this, God, our Father, who art an hour, you know, we, we pray for what we want. No, we're coming with a posture of saying, have mercy on me. Yeah, I am prideful. Yeah, I am egotistical. Yeah, I, I, I have some pain within myself, so have mercy on me. I need, I, need, I need you, being the true physician, to heal the sickness within me. Have mercy on me, O God. These are the very first words. And that language is used all throughout liturgical prayer and in our ancient uh, prayers personally. Our personal prayer book the church gives us to guide us in how to pray. Because let's face it, when you and I pray personally, uh, God help you know, my kid with this test, uh, Lord help me you know, you know, for me to buy this house, whatever. We pray for things that like we don't know what we're saying sometimes. So the church says, I got you. The church holds our hand and gives us a Coptic prayer book titled the Egbeya. Uh, you can buy this, by the way, on Amazon. I think we have a connection table. And you can get the audio version on, uh, like, iTunes, Spotify, all this stuff. This is not a commercial, but I'm just saying, so you can, you can if you want, to listen to it. But the prayers of, of the Egbeya give us an opportunity to look within ourselves. Why? Our reflex is... Well, he did this. She did that. Can you believe what this politician just did yesterday? That's our reflex. But the church says, no, no, no. Prioritize your soul. Prioritize the brokenness within you. In the first hour, the morning prayers that the church gives us, the first hour of the Igbeya, one of the prayers that, that, that we read is a passage St. Paul told an early group of Christians. I, therefore, this is words of St. Paul, and we pray this in the first hour of Igbeya. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he sees himself that he's in prison to work for God, to serve God. I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. He's telling us, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. He's like, do you know your calling? Do you know your worthiness? Do you know your value? I want you to walk worthy of the calling in which you have been called to. I want you to know your value. Walk worthy of the calling with which you are called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why on earth? Please tell me why these five verses... Why did the church, why did, they, they could have put any other Bible passage. Why, out of all Bible passages, the church decided to give us those five verses to pray together, communally, in our first, in, in, in our first hour of Egbeya. Why? The church is one saying, know your calling, know your value, know your worth, know who your heavenly father says you are, and then walk with, be gentle, be lowly, endeavoring to keep the unity of peace, the spirit and the bond of peace. So the church is charging us, before you go out and deal with your spouse, before your kids, that annoying person at work, before you jump into all of that, 
the, the, the church is encouraging us to make sure we understand our calling if we are called to be the light of him. Liturgically as well, if we go back to postures and, and, and worship, maybe you've noticed before we begin the liturgy of the faithful, most prayers liturgically, the priest, like if this is east and this is the altar, the priest will pray to the left of it and to the side most of the time. Why? Like, just pray in the middle. Like, we're, just, don't, why you move? Just, why, just stay in the middle. Why is the church, why is the church giving us that posture to priests to say, move, you know, don't, don't pray in the middle, pray to the side most of the time? Why is the church telling us that? The church is wanting to give, to remind us that, you know what, I, I'm limited. I'm weak. I got my own issues, man. And I'm coming to my Savior. I'm coming to the creator of heaven and earth but I'm coming with my weakness, with my struggles, and I'm coming. I, I, I'm unworthy to just come and just and pray to him like this. No, I'm coming to him to the side, yearning for him, yearning for his love to overwhelm my life. Is there anything wrong with praying in the middle? No. Who cares? Can I pray uh, upside down? Who cares? It doesn't matter. But it's, an, it's a gesture. It's a posture. It's an expression for, to remind myself to look within. Decision, decision number one last week. Focus on the who when we're reconciling, reconnecting those broken relationships. Focus on the who, not the thing that caused the division in the first place. Don't focus on getting back at. Focus on getting back to someone. So that was our decision number one. Decision number two, I will own my weakness. Believe me, you hear this, you probably hear this entire talk, and you're like, man, you don't, it's easy for you to say, Father Nate, you don't know what he did, you don't know what she did. I get it, I get it, and I sympathize with you. And I know your story is unique, but please own your weakness, own your issue, own your problem that is causing maybe some more tension in the relationship. I will own my weakness. I will begin with the man in the mirror. Thank you, okay. Michael Jackson. You thought I was gonna sing. St. Paul says this, if it is all possible He's telling the city of Rome this. If it is all possible, as much as it depends on you, like as much as you possibly can, as much as you have the capacity to control, live at peace with everyone. He could have easily just made the verse a few verses. He could have said, be at peace with everyone. Okay, but St. Paul's being realistic. Listen, as much as it's all possible, as much as you have the capacity to be able to control what's going on in that relationship, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I want to share with you a meditation on this verse in which a philosopher from the city of Alexandria, Egypt, gave. He gave this in the second century. His name is Origen. And he said this in the second century. The apostle, St. Paul, about the verse we just read, here gives a very balanced command because he knows perfectly well that peace depends on you and your spouse, you and that group, you and that person. And the other party may well be hostile and block peace. What he asks is that our mind should always be ready for peace and that the blame for any discord should lie with the other side and not with us. Of course, of course, there are times when this command cannot be applied. For example, we cannot have peace and fellowship with evil. It is one thing to love people, but quite another to love crimes. Whoever loves people loves God's creatures. But whoever loves crimes loves the inventions of the devil. Therefore, 
Those who are perfect, those who are perfect will love the sinner, but hate the sin. That's where maybe a common saying you have heard growing up came from origin. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. It's not in the Bible, by the way, it's origin. Maybe, let me read your mind. <laughs> maybe some of you are like, God, I really wish he was here at the eight. I really wish she was here. How, when is this going to be uploaded on YouTube? Well, how can I send them the link without them knowing I'm the one that sent it to them? Maybe that's what you and I are thinking. But f- try to fight that reflex. Because, th- again, that's pointing the finger. Let it begin with us. As in the words of St. Paul, I am sinner, of whom I am chief. Like, we're all weak, but I, I, I'm the one that's the weakest. Let that be not just head language. Let this be heart language. Where can we work on person? You know, if you aren't willing to do what you want the other person to do, if you and I are not willing to do what we want that other person to do, you know what that makes you and me? Hypocrite. For us not to do what we want that other person to do, what does that make us? Actors. Hypocrites. You do not know what can be unlocked when we take blame, when we take ownership, when we acknowledge our weakness, and then we can go from there. The more I look inward, the more I see my own weakness and struggles and sins and habits, the more I acknowledge my insecurities and sins and struggles, the more I acknowledge that, the more, sorry, the less I'm going to point at someone else. The more I acknowledge my own struggles, the less I'm going to point at someone else. So it has to begin with the man in the mirror. It has to begin with me looking introspectively. It has to begin with me having a repented heart. If I don't begin there, then it's impossible for me to move forward to bring any reconciliation. So decision number one, focus on the who, not the thing. Decision number two, I have to own my weakness. I want to share with you a very beautiful story of this monk. But St. Moses the Strong, or St. Moses the Ethiopian, he was like a, a, a thug. He was, he was a part of a, of a, of a gang uh, in the desert of Egypt. And he was running away, actually, because he got caught with a crime. So he's running away, and he ends up running right to the door of the monastery in Egypt. So he, like, runs into the monastery, and the monks are like, uh, I don't know, are you going to really bring a thug in or not? And like, whatever. So like, you can read the whole story. You can get his book to read his story. It's a beautiful story. But as he continues to grow spiritually and maturing, and you see his struggle of him pushing, of letting go of his old life and embracing how much he's loved by God. And as he begins his new life with Christ, he was asked, there was a council of monks who were getting together to, like, punish another monk for something he did wrong in the monastery. Like, another monk did something wrong in the monastery. We're not sure about all the details. He did something wrong, and there was going to be a council of different monks to be able to, like, reprimand this monk for what he did wrong, to judge him. Kind of like a court system, but in a, in a monastery, all right? So they called Moses, St. Moses the Strong, to be one of the people on the council. So before he goes to the council, and before he's about to be asked to judge someone else, He grabs this massive, heavy bag of sand, and there's a hole on it, and it's it's dripping sand. It's it's just, sand is kind of like just trickling out of this bag as he's walking. And he gets to the council, and the other monk's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, we're, we're about to judge what this monk did. Like, what are you doing? And Moses said, this reminds me, my sins are always before me. My, my issues are always before me, and they impact every aspect of my life. Just as I've been walking around the monastery, and you see the sand following me, the same way, 
my sins, my issues, my struggles, in which I try to run away from, they're actually impacting everything and everyone around me. So before I'm able to judge this person, before I'm able to, 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 to guide him or correct him or reprimand him, it has to begin with me. His story is phenomenal. And I would encourage you to look more into his story, St. Moses the Strong. This is why you'll always see an icon. This is an icon of him in the Coptic uh, art style. You always see him carrying a bag of sand. It's to remind us of that story. Because then when I look at this icon, it's not like, okay, cool, nice icon. No, it's to remind me, just as he did this, my sins are always before me. My weakness is always before me. I'm wanting to reconcile with that person, with that group. I have to begin with myself and fight the reflex of pointing at someone else. Let this be our push, especially as we're in the holiday season with maybe family members who we try to avoid or you don't want to answer that phone call. You, you don't want to be around that person. I get it. I get it. I know where you're coming from. But let this series be a push for A, to focus on the who, not the thing. And second, second decision we need to make is I need to own my weakness. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, all of us naturally want to lean at pointing at someone else or blaming someone else for maybe an issue that we have in our life. But Lord, I pray that like, we can maybe break down some of those walls, those barriers, those grudges, and for us to at least today acknowledge and our own weakness. Where do I fall? What's preventing me from moving forward? It has to begin with us. And you have pushed us to embrace this mindset through the expressions of our ancient church. You have encouraged us by giving us this analogy in which you told your followers that we have to begin with the plank in our own eye before we're able to correct someone else. Lord, I pray that we can have the spirit of humility and know that our mission, our calling that you have called us to is to be the light of you, but it has to begin with us looking inward. Lord, we thank you for giving us this story and, and, and capturing what happened with St. Moses. For that to inspire us and for us to follow his path in the same way. As he lived a life of humility, we yearn to follow in that same model. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. Santa is coming into town next Sunday, so we'll have something special at the 8 next Sunday. So make sure you invite a friend.